where eternity, the Bible talks about that, that humans have eternity in their hearts. So you have to understand that praise uh, emerges from the place where eternity, where our lives respond to the eternity that's in our hearts, where heaven's space invades or in, interrupts our lives, where, where God's presence touches us. And this is where praise should emerge. Amen. That's why it's no small thing to praise God. Because praise quite literally is a response to God's presence in our lives. Amen. We thank God for all that God has done and will continue to do in our lives. We're so grateful. Thank you, worship team, for uh, leading us into uh, the presence of God this morning. Amen. Amen. And uh, I was going to say happy MLK weekend, but it's not really a good way to say MLK weekend. (laughs) To say happy MLK weekend. I'll just say joyous MLK weekend for those who are engaged in honoring and uh, remembering Dr. King. So here's the thing I want to say, and it might get me a little trouble. You don't celebrate Dr. King's birthday. Amen. You can't celebrate the prophet until what he prophesied actually comes into fulfillment. Amen. Is justice everywhere? Is inequity stopped? Has inequality stopped? White supremacy hasn't been stopped? Then what are we celebrating? We can remember and we can honor the ministry and the message. Amen. That's my little... Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, uh, remembrance. Y'all probably thinking, what in the world happened in here? Why are we meeting like this? Why are we in the round? And so I had this inspiration, right? I was reading, we're reading the book of Acts. And last week we started our series, the Gravity Series. And we've talked about uh, the journey of the early church in relationship to the Holy Spirit. We begin to ask ourselves, What can we as a church learn about uh, the early church? What can we learn in the book of Acts? What lessons uh, does the Holy Spirit want to teach us from reading together as a community uh, the book of Acts? And so one of the things that I noticed in Acts and in the book of Luke, in the gospel of Luke, is that it talks over and over again in how they came around Jesus. Right? So that's why I place uh, the symbols of the cup and the plate to symbolize the Eucharist, uh, we're going to take communion today. And I want to celebrate, I want to lift up, this symbolizes how as a community we are centering our lives, we are centering our church around the risen Jesus. Amen. Later on, I'll probably get some candles and, you know, make it real liturgical light, make it real, you know, sacred and spiritual. Uh, But just bear with me. But also, this has ancient roots in the church. The early church, when they would meet in houses, they met in houses initially, right? Or they met in marketplace. They met in places, public places. They will often meet in the round so that every person can see the other person's face, right? Because we're so used to, like, just, in you know, kind of a spectator. Worship becomes like a spectator sport when the only thing that we see is the back of each other's heads, But this goes all the way back in ancient culture, all the way back in the ancient church, even in Africa, where uh, communities came together in the circle to deliberate, to pray, to see each other's face, to to, uh, enjoy the presence of each other, but more importantly, to center their lives around the risen Jesus. So this is why we're meeting in the round, at least for this series. I don't know what's going to happen after this series. And so, uh, just a brief recap, a recap. Man, I've been thinking about uh, last Sunday's sermon all week. I don't know about you. If you want to hear last week, I hope you had a chance to listen to it online. Um, The Spirit ruined my prayer life this week because no longer, you know, no longer should we be praying as if Jesus is somewhere else, right? No longer should we be praying as if Jesus is not raised from the dead. No longer should we be praying as if this is only a doctrine to be believed. Uh, But what we get from the early church, what we learned last week in Acts chapter 1, is that 
the early church had this crazy notion that Jesus somehow was hidden yet very present with them. And so last week we talked about uh, the beginnings of this thing. We talked about how uh, uh, Luke, the writer of the book of Acts, starts off the book saying, uh, in my former book, Theophilus, or God lover in the Greek, uh, uh, I, I told you to all that Jesus began and to do. And so we talked about last week how in the gospel of Luke, Luke tells us what Jesus began and what he began to do and what he began to teach in the gospel of Luke. In Acts, it's about what Jesus continues to do and continues to teach through his church in the world. Mm, okay, all right, some of y'all weren't here last week. And so one of the things that we, we talked about last week, just a brief recap, this is important. The thing that I learned last week, I don't know about you, and uh, uh, Shamika just reemphasized uh, re this in the worship, is that the thing I learned last week is that when we are a church like the early church, the first thing we got to be is a people of prayer. I mean, that goes without saying, right? I mean, you think church, you think, okay, yeah, we know we're supposed to pray. But the thing that we talked about last week was, was that in Acts chapter 1, let's go there real quick, just a brief recap. I'm not going to dig too deep because I got to get into Pentecost this morning. I'm hoping to further ruin your prayer life again and to irrevocably see, change the way you view the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Come on, y'all supposed to laugh. Y'all supposed to laugh at that one. It's serious business. So in Acts chapter 1, Verse 9, it says, after he's, oh, I'm sorry, I didn't tell y'all where I was going to preach this. I'm sorry, Gabby, forgive me. So Acts chapter 1, verse 9, we're going to be in Acts. So. <laughs> after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. Amen. We talked about this last week, right? It doesn't say that the cloud took him to another solar system. The cloud didn't take him to Jupiter. It said it simply hit, them, hit him, Jesus, from their sight. <laughs> and we talked about how uh, this prayer piece is so important. Because we understand up to this point, because prior to that, if you read up a couple of verses in the very beginning, it says that in his resurrection state, he had sat and he sat with the apostles for 40 days, teaching them things pertaining to what? The kingdom of God. Right? And so we talked about how when Jesus was crucified, they were devastated. They were hurt because they lost their big brother. They lost their rabbi. They lost their teacher. They lost their Lord, their master, their king. And they were devastated. They were hurt. Some of them just ran and scattered, scared, because they were like, I don't want to get killed like Jesus. And so some of them ran. Only his mama and John and a couple other folks stayed. They're right there at the foot of the cross. Amen. And so what happened when Jesus shows back up? They're probably like, oh, my God. We said they were excited probably. They were probably ecstatic. They were probably like overjoyed. Like, oh, whew, man, we thought this was over. We thought the kingdom of God, this work of the kingdom was over. And you can imagine them all excited. Man, we get to talk to him again. We get to touch him again, right? We get to feel his presence again. We get to be with him. We get to eat with him and fellowship with him again. But then he says, I got to go again. And you can imagine possibly the sadness that they may have felt. I can imagine Peter like, again, Lord? You gonna, you gonna leave us again? His mama like, come on, son. Really? I want to hear your voice again. I love you. I love embracing you. I love being in your presence. But then Jesus says, I, I'm going to be with you. I'm sending the Holy Spirit in my place. So wherever the Spirit is, I'm present. Matter of fact, that's why Luke says he's hidden yet present. Jesus said in John chapter 14, he says, he says, I won't leave you as orphans in the world. He was serious. He says, where I am, 
I'll be with you. He says, I and the Father are in each other, and I and me and the Father will be in you. He says, so wherever the Holy Spirit is, wherever God's Shekinah, God's presence is, Jesus says, I will be with you. So you can imagine Jesus' instructions to them was to go to Jerusalem and wait for the same power that had anointed him to wait to receive that same power. So you can imagine the urgency to get to the place of prayer. We read in John, in Acts chapter, uh, when we got to Acts 1.14, they all joined together constantly in prayer. And this is so important, the word prayer, there's like 50 million different words for the word, Greek word for the word prayer. The word, Greek word for prayer, there's a Greek word prosukamai, which literally means, it doesn't mean intercession. It doesn't mean supplication. It doesn't mean to ask God for stuff. It doesn't mean to intercede for other people. It literally means to face. It means to intentionally get into a place where you are face-to-face with someone. Who do you imagine that Jesus' mama, Peter, John, all the other apostles and disciples, who do you think they were facing? Take a guess. Jesus? They just talked to him. So it says they constantly faced him because mm. he was hidden. And the key verse going back, you know, the key, the, the, the play of words that Luke does, he says, uh, the cloud hid him, verse 9, the cloud hid him from their sight, right? And then verse 10, it says they were looking, although he was hidden from their sight. They kept looking, although he was hidden from their sight. See, for Jesus to be hidden from their sight does not mean that he was not present. He's just hidden. So we had a thought experiment. We put a little Einstein out the cupboard, and we asked a question. Let's do a thought experiment. What would your prayer life be like if you understood, if you imagined that you are face-to-face with the hidden Jesus? If Jesus really didn't go anywhere, but he was hidden, would your prayer life be different? But the thing that messed us up was we got to this, uh, and, 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 and the yearning that they had, the, 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 the urgency that they had. But I love when they're looking, right, and the, the, the two men, the angelic presence, right, they said, man, what are y'all looking at? Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? You know, it's when people pray, they look up. Right? And, and so one of the things we, we've talked before in, in our labs during the week is we talked about the reason why Christians have inherited body postures of prayer. A lot of times people don't even know why we do the certain postures that we do that have been inherited to us for centuries and centuries. Why do we look up when we pray? Why? Because one, it's a symbolic gesture saying, I am in the presence of one who's greater than me. That's why we look up. Why do we, when we, when we kneel and we bow our heads, why do we bow our heads? Because in the ancient world, to expose your neck means that your life belongs to the king. His life is in your hands. <laughs> That's stuff we don't know we do in church. We don't even know why we do it. So they're looking up, but they ain't looking up just because he's the greater one. They're looking up. They're actually trying to find him. Is he in that cumulus cloud over there? Where, where is he? But I love what the angel says. He says, why do you here, stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven. Heaven is not up there, far away somewhere. Heaven is God's dimension. Heaven is right here. Heaven is this other side of the same reality in which we live in God's order, God's reality. Good Pentecostal that I am, it's the spiritual realm, as we say, in Pentecostal world, right? It's the other dimension. Heaven is right here. Hmm. But the key word there, the key phrase, this same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven 
will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. How did he go into heaven? He became hidden. Hmm. How will he come back? Hidden. There, now, 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 before y'all get, y'all, before y'all burn me at the stake, I got to tell you this. I affirm the Apostles' Creed. I believe in the second coming of Jesus in the judgment. I believe in uh, the final coming of Jesus at the end of history, whatever that looks like. I do believe that, but I don't believe that this text is talking about that. I actually think what he's talking about when he says, when the way he left, he left hidden, but he's coming back for you to experience hidden. It happens in the next chapter. He actually comes back in the next chapter. Y'all don't believe me, do you? Let's go there. Acts chapter 2. You won't see Pentecost the same again. I keep thinking of that Al Green song. <laughs> He's talking about the second coming, though. Right? He's coming back. Just like he said he would. Right? Y'all see why I'm not on the worship team. Right? Let's get into Acts chapter 2 here. And Gabby, I'll be reading verses, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Amen. This is our stop for this morning. And this is important, you know, just to, just to reiterate again, why are we reading this? Uh, since, this since it is MLK weekend, I do have a quote from you, from Martin Luther King Jr., actually. It's, gonna, it's my... You know, this is my dutiful quote of MLK, right? Everybody's quoting MLK, the really nice MLK stuff, right? You know, be all you can be. I mean, he won't say that, but, you know, the real inspirational type stuff, right? And, uh, can, I, can, I, can I tell y'all something? Y'all probably don't know this. Y'all know that his last sermon, he never got to preach it. Before, the night he was assassinated, he was working on the sermon um, before, why he, before he got killed because he was about to launch off the uh, Poor People's Campaign. Y'all know his last sermon was going to be? It was the title of it was already on his notepad. Y'all know what the name of his sermon was going to be? Why America's Going to Hell. <laughs> Seriously. It was in the King Archives in Atlanta. Right? Because it was so wrapped up in militarism, racism, and environmental degradation, you know, and all that stuff. But anyway, I got, I got an inspiring quote from King. Sort of. King was a student of Christianity. King was, we don't talk a lot about this in the church. We don't realize how deep a biblical scholar and theologian King was. We just simply talk about, you know, how he had a dream speech and he marched and all this kind of stuff and the political stuff. Thank you. And um, we, don't, we don't get into the, uh, the, the, the Christian King. Did y'all know? That when during the Montgomery bus boycott, in the in the heat of it, every day they were getting bomb threats, they were getting death threats every day, and he got to the point where, um, when they threatened to kill his children, his wife, his friends, his church, gonna, they threatened to bomb his church, and he got to the point where he's like, man, I, I can't do this, Lord. So he went to his kitchen table, and he was like, Lord, I I can't. I can't do this. I'm, I'm going to. He had, to, he had this thing. He began to write out a to-do list and how he's going to back out of the movement and how he was going to tell everybody the Montgomery Improvement Association, I can't do this no more. And then he said, revelation hit him. And he said, Jesus spoke to him. He says, Martin Luther, I've called you to stand up for justice. I've called you to stand up for righteousness. I have called you to do this. That's a part of King's story you don't hear about. It was revelation from the risen Christ that kept them going. It just was some heartfelt ideal for democracy. It was Jesus. With that, I read this quote from King. If today's church does not recapture the sacrificial spirit of the early church, it will lose its authenticity forfeit the loyalty of millions and be dismissed as an irrelevant social club with no meaning for the 20th century. Wow, yeah, inspiring. 
This won't be read Monday at the breakfast. Hopefully it will. I mean, I hope it does. But we got to get to the, the prophetic edge of King, right? And so what inspired him? It was Jesus. The hidden yet present Jesus is what forced him, what propelled him, which gave his soul uh, sustenance to keep moving and marching for justice. Pentecost. So King says, man, y'all got to look at the early church. Y'all want to know what it's like to keep moving with God? Look at the early church. This is what King is saying. That's what we're doing for the next several weeks. Right? Amen. Let's read this. This is Acts chapter 2, reading verses 1 through 13. I'm going to kind of stop and go like we did last week because there's some deep, powerful stuff here that um, quite honestly, I hope it shatters some stuff. I'm sorry, I'm going to move this right here. Sorry, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> I don't believe this is Jesus, y'all. I'm just saying, you know. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Pentecost, this is important. Pentecost was a day that Jews celebrated the giving of the law to Israel back in when Moses and the children of Israel left Egypt. Uh, when they go to Mount Sinai, it was a day, it was like their, uh, their constitutional day, right? The day that their constitution became alive when God gave them uh, the, this new way of living in the world because formerly they only knew how to be slaves, and so Pentecost is a celebration when God gave them the law, but the law represented a new way of living in the world. So it's on this day. They're all together. They have obeyed Jesus' last instructions. Jesus told them to go to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. And here they are praying constantly. They are facing him. They are, like we said last week, um, for us, the challenge for us, is to, if, you, if you're not in a place spiritually where you sense God's presence or when you are aware that you are face-to-face -face with the hidden Jesus, the thing I challenged you with last week, imagine it until you know it. Imagine that you are faced with the hidden Jesus until you know that you're in the face of the hidden Jesus. Mm. <laughs> Suddenly, verse 2, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from where? Hmm. Somebody's coming back. <laughs> they said that he was coming back the way that he left. He left hidden. Now he's coming back hidden. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. I want you to notice something that is so important for the church. I want you to hear this. Suddenly, this sound comes from heaven blowing and said it filled the whole house. I want you to notice something here. It filled the house before it filled the disciples. It filled the house, it says. Then it filled the disciples. What does it say? That churches have to cultivate spaces where they are filled with divine presence, where when people come in, they experience God. God filled the atmosphere first before he filled people. Mm. He filled the house before he filled people. My God, how it gets better. So this spirit, right, this holy spirit, right, this third person of the Trinity, as we 
uh, Christians who affirm the orthodox classical creeds of the Christian church, right? Uh, the, the Jewish understanding of spirit, Shekinah, or Ruach in the Hebrew is, is, is and here's the thing that I love about the Hebrew is the way that it uh, 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 images uh, the word spirit. See, in the, in the Jewish imagination, the folks who wrote the Bible, by the way, especially the Old Testament, uh, the spirit is, is a feminine gender. Uh, the spirit in scripture is often imagized as a woman. Y'all okay? Matter of fact, there's a passage, um, Proverbs, Gabby, uh, Proverbs 8, 22 through 31. I want to read to you. This is an imagery here. But before I get to Proverbs 8, 22, 31, I'm just going to read to you. You want to pull this one up, Gabby, but that's the Proverbs one. Proverbs 8, 22 through 31. But before I read it, I want you to get an understanding of what has hit them. Or who, I should say, not what, but who has hit them, the Holy Spirit, right? Who has been unleashed to fill the whole house and to fill the people up, right? And so it starts back in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. When God's Spirit hovers over the face of the water, Spirit, or Ruach in Hebrew, is that cast as, as imagized as a woman. The Spirit is often cast as a woman when creativity is being talked about in Scripture. Because women give birth. Something is created inside women. In the womb. So women are always held in Scripture as a powerful creative presence in the world. Mm. Y'all don't believe me? Turn that. Let's go to Acts, uh, not Acts, but Proverbs 8, 31. You should have it there. This imagery here. So here's the thing I need you to understand. So the spirit of God is, is cast, is, is, is represented in Genesis 1 as being a co-creator with Father, right, with, with God. Somehow God uses or works through the Holy Spirit to shape and form the universe, the creation as we understand it now. Right, And so in Proverbs 8, uh, in the Jewish imagination, the spirit is also equated with wisdom. Proverbs 8, 22, 31. I'm going somewhere, y'all. Y'all I'm, I'm building the foundation here. This is wisdom. This is the spirit talking about her experience with God. Now, this is symbolic stuff here, right? But this is wisdom speaking. The spirit speaking about the experience that the Spirit had when creating the universe. I want you to notice this. The Lord brought me forth as the first of his works before his deeds of old. I was formed long ages ago at the very beginning when the world came to be. This is wisdom talking. When there were no watery depths, I, get, I was given birth, and there was no springs overflowing with water before the mountains were settled in place before the hills. I was given birth before he made the world or was fields or any of the dust of the earth. I was there when he set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the sea its boundaries so the waters would not overstep his command. And when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in this whole world and the delighting in humankind. The spirit is cast and presented in scripture as God's creative power to make things. It said the, it said the, the earth uh, the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the waters, of the deep. The imagery there is, is a bird with mighty wings, whose wings, when they flap, the wind that it sends brought shape and creation to the world. Mm. Spirit is creative power of God to make things, and specifically also to make things new. Back to one, Acts chapter two, verse two. 
Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind. I was always curious about this. Why that imagery? Why those words? Is the spirit violent? Right? I mean, that's the English translation. The King James, right? We get that from the King James. Anybody got King James? How does the King James read? That Just that verse 2 there. Verse 2, Acts chapter 2, verse 2. Mm-hmm. Amen. Thank you. King James actually gives it a, a more softer coma, right? It says rushing. <laughs> I love that. Mm. Now, you know, in my imagination, I don't know about y'all, but all this time I kept thinking, okay, they're kind of sitting around and, you know, this wind just kind of comes in and, you know, they probably had, I always imagined like they had like those, uh, what's those wood panels they have outside of windows and you close them in, what do they call them things? Shutters, yes, yes. So I always had this image like the spirit just kind of, this wind is kind of blowing in and and the shutters kind of flapping in. And they're just sitting there praying, like, oh, my God, it's, you know, spirit, and just falling all over the place. And, and it's, I just kind of had this imagery there, right? But, you know, as I look deeper into this, you know, it's interesting because, one, it says the, the, the sound. That word sound there is a very strong word. It's where we get the Greek word echo. Right? It also means roar. It, it literally means the roar of heaven. <laughs> what does it mean to have the roar of heaven? Right? I'm saying that word roar, right? You think about different things that are roar in the world. Ocean, the roar of the ocean, the sound of the ocean. Right? I don't know about you ever going to the beach and it's silent, and then you, all you can hear at some point when you turn off all the electronics and the TV, you literally can hear the roar of the ocean, right? It's almost a, the ocean letting you know that it's here. <laughs> or you think about the roar of a lion, roar. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm a scientist. Lions roar. One of the reasons why, why do lions roar? Lions roar. One of the reasons why lions roar is to let other people know, the other animals know, and other lions know that I am here. A roar from heaven. A roar from heaven. So back to this other word, this word violent or rushing thing. Rushing or violent. Mm. See, y'all got to understand, Luke is actually a Greek scholar, right? He is, his Greek is real polished. It's not rough like the gospel of Mark and other gospels or other New Testament, right? So, so Luke is very intentional in the words that he uses. And so, so far up to now, what do we know? We know that there is a echo, there is a roar from heaven that has come to fill up the room to let everybody know that somebody has shown up. Then he says this, he says, rushing, right? He says, rushing, right? It's this Greek word, bia, B-I-A. It comes out of Greek mythology. Mm-hmm. The, the word rushing there, that word, or not the word, the word violent, right? The word violent or rushing wind, it literally is a creative force that unravels and deconstructs what is established. It is a power that uh, compels. It is a power that reshapes what it touches. It is a power whose work in the world that when it touches whatever it touches, it disestablishes, it rearranges things, it literally destroys what is old and rebuilds something new. 
Luke pulled this powerful word out of the Greek lexicon to let the church know that you got to understand when the Spirit of God showed up, you know the one, the one who created the world. When the Holy Spirit shows up, what was established in your life that was not of God, when I show up, I will destroy it and reestablish and reshape and make something new inside of you. Creative destruction. (laughs) You thought the spirit was just here to make you feel good. The spirit is here to destroy some things. And to create new things in our lives. This is crazy. That word, the word Bia was, mm. all my woke folk here this morning, you know, I got to go a little to the political side. Just a little bit. We're going to come back. So. Bia was seen as a force that would enter into a town that was acting unjustly and wreak havoc. It was a force that was seen to come up and, 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 and discombobulate and to cause disorder in a false order. Mm. You can apply that personally. Some of us, our lives are out of order. But in our imagination, we think we got it together. The spirit is that force, that power, that creative power that comes into our lives to disrupt the lies that we tell ourselves and with the lies that the world has told us about ourselves and even to disrupt the lies that the world tells about itself to tell, bring truth. Mm. But also the ability to change our lives. Mm. This hidden fire, this is what it ends up being, right? We talked about the hidden Jesus. We're talking about hidden fire this morning. This hidden fire will undo the status quo or what has been established in your own heart. Mm. And he says, the blowing of a violent wind, right? There's suddenly a sound like the blowing of a mighty wind. That blowing there, the blowing of a mighty wind, blowing of a mighty wind, or rushing like a a violent wind or mighty wind. It literally means, it doesn't mean just, it don't mean just that. It don't mean just it's going by fast, right? It's going to make you, it's going to mess me. I, when I read this, I'm like, well, are you sure Greek translation? Um, the Strong's, did you get this right? But that word rushing or, or blowing mighty wind or rushing mighty wind or violent wind, it literally means to carry two. Mm. As if to say to carry someone to you. the other translation, to make known publicly. Here is the Spirit showing up in the midst of Jesus' disciples when Jesus told them, he said, I'm coming back, but I'm coming back hidden. He lets them know, he says, that the wind here, the wind says that it's a mighty rushing wind. It is, a, it is the wind of God's Spirit, the Ruach, the creative, destructive force of God showing up to make publicly known somebody. So that you know that somebody has made themselves public. This wind is showing up to manifest, to reveal, to make known to somebody, all these people, somebody. Jesus. Jesus has returned hidden. 
yet powerfully present. The roar of heaven. See, Jesus, Jesus sends his roar from heaven, who is the Holy Spirit. Let me put it another way. The Spirit of God is Jesus' roar. <laughs> Did you catch that for a moment? Think about that for a moment. The Spirit of God. It's Jesus' roar. So when Jesus roars to the Spirit, he's letting you know, I'm here. I'm here to give you instructions. I'm here to create some, some destruction in your life to get you on the right path. The Holy Spirit is the roar of Jesus. The roar from heaven. You know, it did say this wind came from heaven, the place, uh, the previous chapter Jesus went to. Uh. And then it says the house was filled. They set the atmosphere for people to become aware and to encounter the hidden and present Jesus. And then they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So what do we have up to this point? What do we have? What, do we, what kind of community do we have at this point that follows the example and path of the early church? We have a community, one, that prays face-to-face -face with Jesus. And then we have a community that somehow, some way, has been baptized in heavenly fire. They're filled. They're baptized. They're filled with the Holy Spirit. The roar of Jesus abides in them. But then they begin to speak in tongues of fire. Jesus said, the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if fire is hidden in us now, if we, the Spirit of God has filled us, the very roar of Jesus fills us, it makes sense now that when we talk from our heart, if our hearts are on fire, guess what? We talk fire. Let me put it another way. So if the abundance or the abundance of the heart, the abundance of the heart speaks, uh, if, if we are filled and baptized with the Holy Spirit, the fire from heaven, that means we have tongues of fire. What does that also mean? That means that Jesus roars through his people. So guess what? A community that, is, that has gravity to it, a community that's following the Holy Spirit to the book of Acts, guess what? They roar Jesus to the world around them. Now they speak in the language of heaven. So, so guess what? Guess what? They become, um, before I say this, anybody ever taught or ever experienced English as a second language? You know ESL courses. You've heard of these, though, right? Right. English as a second language, right? So what happens here is, um, you know, um, any any Lord of the Rings fans here? So so yeah. You like Lord of the Rings? Amen. Praise God. You are you are not alone, sister. So so okay, Mike. Okay, Amen. Praise God. Right, right. You know the the Fellowship of the Ring, the Hobbits, the Dwarfs, and the the, the kingdoms of men coming together. Amen. To take out Mordor. They're like, man, this brother weird. And so, so it was weird because I remember before the movies came out, I was a, I was a Rings fan before the movies came out. I actually read the books. And so one of the reasons, probably one of the reasons why my kids are a little strange is because before they go to bed at night, I would actually read Lord of the Rings to them. 
And so it, it got so weird, y'all. We'll be up, you know, before they go to bed, before they go to school next morning. I'll be reading. And in in, in, if you notice in the Lord of the Rings, they would sing songs every once in a while, right? And sometimes those songs would be sung in Elvish, this made-up language that J.R. Tolkien, the author of Lord of the Rings, made up. And so here I am up in stairs in, with my kids in the bed, and I'm singing Elvish to my kids. And, of course, they hear me straight in the look like. Okay, so anybody here speak Elvish? No? I was going to quote some Elvish to you today. Ah, we'll do another day. How many here speak English? A little bit? It was funny, I work at Social Security, right? And so every once in a while, I get some racist person call me and talk about Hispanic folk. They need to learn English, you know. That, 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 that. I'm like, you need to learn English. <laughs> you talk about folk that can't speak English from another country, at least they're trying to learn it. You was asleep in English class. So everybody here, raise your hand if you speak English. How many of you here speak heavenish? <laughs> Amen. <laughs> Kenya? You speak Kenyan? Oh, okay, okay. Okay. Hablo espanol. Poquito. Burro sabe más que yo. I just insulted all of y'all. Never mind. <laughs> we got to edit that part of the sermon. <laughs> I was I gotta say it the verse though. But do you speak heavenish? So you've been raised in this country to speak English. See, language. Uh, here's the thing about language. Language delivers to you a world in which you live in. It, it delivers cultural values and ways of being in the world. Language captures all of that, the culture, the habits, the beliefs that you have in, uh, in socialized and, and internalized in your life. You speak English. Why? Because you live in an English-speaking what? World. But what does it mean to say when you speak heavenish? Then they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. There is a language that God wants to give his people that's different from the world. See, the world says hate. God says love. The world says despair, God says purpose and hope. There's a heavenish, there is a language of the early church that the Holy Spirit gave them. Yes, there is our prayer language of speaking in tongues. The Bible says, that's why in Judah says, building up your most holy faith through speaking in tongues, right? That's why sometimes you get, you get into a crutch or you get into a crunch sometimes. You get into a place spiritually where it's dry, you're in challenge. If you just begin to engage with your heavenly language, it's almost like something just loosens. Why? Because you're speaking heavenish. You're speaking a language that's inspired by the very force that moves stuff out the way. <laughs> Turn to your neighbor and say, speak heavenish. Yeah, so see, see, see the church, my God. See, the church should be offering courses of heavenish as a second language.
teaching you how to speak the language and to live in the world as heaven determines. That's why Jesus said this. He says in Matthew chapter 6, he says the disciples wanted to know how to pray. He said this is how you ought to pray. He says, uh, our Father who lives in heaven, hallowed be thy name, or holy is your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it already is in heaven. So to speak heavenish is to speak the will of God. Sometimes English don't capture the will of God. Heavenish does. So what are we learning from Acts? That the church is a people who have hidden fire. And this hidden fire produces something in this. They learn how to become, like many of you already are, I would say that most of us here are fluent in English. You just take it for granted. Right? You can't even imagine the thought of trying to learning a foreign language, you, how rough it is and how it's not as easy as it is. Same thing with heavenish. See, but the thing about heavenish is it's different from any other human language because in other human languages, you just got to learn the words and how to, and how to uh, 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 the verb and, the, uh, you know, the, the subject and the predicate agreement and all this kind of stuff. You just got to learn the language. See, see, heavenish requires not just you speak fire, not only for you to roar, but that your life becomes the very thing that you speak. That your life becomes a roar of Jesus in the world. That your life, that your soul, your, the hidden fire of God takes over your life. And you become that which you're speaking. You are that which you are speaking. Hidden fire. They speak in heaven. So your job now as a follower of Jesus is to become fluent in heavenish. Many of us are not fluent in heavenish. We know our letters, right? I bought my granddaughter some Bob books. And we got a lot of Christians, they still have Bob book level. Letter recognition. Then you formulate words. Then you formulate sentences. Then paragraphs. And even before that, not only do you does word recognition, you begin to understand what those words mean. The same thing with the Christian faith. Sometimes the church has, has, has crazy expectations for people when it comes through its doors. We expect people to be completely fluent and heavenish within a week. It takes time and practice. And more importantly, it takes collaborating and cooperating with God. And quite frankly, the, you know that you become fluent in heaviness when your life becomes more obedient to the roar of God. Obedience is fluency in heavenish. <laughs> hmm. They're becoming fluent in heavenish. So, so, so what's another thing we learn here that a community that has been filled with the roar of Jesus, that has been filled uh, with the presence of the Holy Spirit, they become a people that are fluent, they're becoming fluent in heavenish. The Holy Spirit will take us all through a HSL course. HSL. Heavenish as a second language, or heaven as a second language. Heaven is the reality or dimension where the creative and redemptive will of God flows from. The word fluency also means flow. Part of this whole obedience piece is learning how to allow God to flow through our lives and also how us to flow with God so that God can flow through our lives. And here's this last piece here. And, uh, Verse 5, we'll read to the end. We'll finish up here. Y'all all right? Now, now this is, now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Mm. When they heard this sound, mm. see, see, a lot of times people don't understand the scene here. 
the scene ain't initially a whole lot of people in the room. The scene started out with just Jesus and his initial disciples and his mom and his siblings. But what happens? There were people outside of the room that they were in. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. There were people in pilgrimage to celebrate Pentecost from all over the known world. They were on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. When they what? Heard this sound, a crowd came together. So when a community roars the roar of the Holy Spirit, the world hears, and there are people that will be attracted to the roar of God. A crowd came together in bewilderment. They were blown away because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? So you got to understand what has happened here. Jesus' disciples, his early father, his closest father, his mama and him, his sibling, it was just them, these Galileans, because they was all from Galilee, right? They're speaking the languages of all these different nations, and all these people outside are hearing them speak all these global languages. We miss that part of the story. We always think everybody there was speaking all these different languages to each other. No, it was the people that had been with Jesus. These people in this backwater country, a region called Galilee. These people who were fishermen and, and people who were the lower rung of the ladder, who in no way learned all these different languages. Here they are, this handful of folk speaking all these languages of all these people that's around them. Can you imagine? So they, they walked by the room. They walked by the house they were in, and they heard their language. They said, I'm hearing my language. I'm not from here. Who else is from here that is speaking my language? And so they go up in the room. They're like, these people ain't from where I'm from. They're Galileans. What is this saying? Y'all ready for a truth bomb? In the church, we, just, we get all excited. Yeah, you see, God just, they, they were speaking in different languages and all that. Mm. Y'all ready for this? Jesus was letting them know. When you go back where you're from, I'll be there. I need you to understand what it sounds like for me to speak in your language. What Jesus was saying is, I'm going to be everywhere. He was saying, they heard the Spirit speak through them, the different languages. Jesus was letting them know, giving them a heads up, a status update. Guess what? I'm not only going to speak these different languages here, but I'm going to be where these languages come from. That's the power of the ascension. That's the power of Jesus being hidden now because, because Jesus is hidden now in heavenly presence in the right hand of the Father. What does that mean? That means that Jesus can be everywhere and speak to everybody in their own language at the same time. What does this mean? What does this mean? The revolution can be everywhere now. The revolution just ain't in Galilee anymore. The revolution is where? In Parthia, in Medes, in Elam, in Elam, in Mesopotamia, in Judea, in Cappadocia, in Pontus, in Asia, Phrygia, in Pamphylia, in Egypt, in the parts of Libya, near Cyrene, in Rome, in Crete, in Er, in um, in era, Saudi Arabia, modern day Saudi Arabia. Jesus says, I'm showing up at a place near you soon, speaking to you. And he says, What 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 do they hear them saying in their own tongues? And again, just for re-emphasis, understand 
this is just the Galilean speaking. It's not the other people speaking. It's just Jesus' mama and his brothers and his, and his 12 disciples. It's just them folk, though, 11 disciples at this point because Judas killed himself. But it's just them folk that were speaking, y'all. Did y'all know that? It's right there. You can see it, though. You can see it now, though, right? Can you see it? Raise your hand if you can see what I'm saying here. I'm not making this stuff up. Notice what he says. This is what he, and then it tells you what they're saying in their language. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. It sounds really poetic, real flowery the way he's saying it. But the other way of saying it is we hear them talking about how God acts in the world in our own tongues. We're hearing them talk about how God moves and, and, and changes and works in the world in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed. They asked each other, man, what does this mean? What does this mean? And I finish here with this last point. Some, however, made fun of them and said, maybe they've had too much wine. They look, God, they look intoxicated. And so I begin to think about this. I'm like, what is it about what they're seeing? They're seeing people speak a different language who are not from where the language that they're speaking. And so it's surely, it's got to look weird, right? It's got to look perplexing and amazing. And, and, and the thing about intoxication, if anybody's ever been intoxicated before, you know, in, in, in the former life, <laughs> I remember what intoxic, I mean, real intoxication is. You ain't got to raise your hand if you have been intoxicated before, but you are not yourself. You have an altered state of consciousness. <laughs> I wish I could tell y'all some Navy stories here, but I, I save it for another group, a more uh, a mature audience. So, <laughs> Okay, Tony, I ain't going to tell that story. Anyway, so they appeared to be intoxicated. Here's the thing you need to understand. When we are filled with God's spirit, we become God intoxicated. <laughs> God alters us. The Bible talks over and over again. For those of you who are students of scripture, you've seen scenes like, for instance, when the Bible says, when the spirit will come upon uh, Saul, uh, when when David would play the harp, it says he become another man. The prophets in Scripture, the word prophet is the Greek, uh, the Hebrew word navi. It literally means to bubble up. It means to be intoxicated. It means to be God intoxicated. It means that that somehow, some way, your faculties, your sense of awareness, become overtaken by God's spirit. And you begin to do and say what the spirit wants you to say and do. early church were God intoxicated. Can you imagine a God intoxicated community? Can you imagine what it would look like to be a community that roars Jesus to the nations? Can you imagine what it would look like to be a people who are in the midst of hidden fire, that hidden fire uh, captures our imagination, that, that propels us, that pushes us, that moves us into the world to speak Jesus, to speak the heavenly language, to speak the nations of other people. This is what it means to be gravity. I want folks to be able to say, man, that brother had too much wine. I want people to say about Mission House, man, that church, I think they drink. 
because they came out different. They didn't have too much wine. They seemed to be under the influence. Because they're speaking God's creative destruction in the world. They're speaking God's will in the world, creative and redemptive will in the world. And they're becoming that. So Acts teaches us that we're to be under the influence of God. That's another way of saying it. I mean, it wouldn't be cool if I walked out here and just said, hey, y'all, y'all need to be under the influence of God. But we had to unpack this a little bit. Can you imagine us being those little group of Galileans who constantly in prayer engaging Jesus' hidden presence, but yet they're endowed by God to do the work that they're called to do in this world? Amen. We're about to take uh, communion. And at Mission House, we do, we just started doing communion in a different kind of way. Uh, we're doing a more 